You're listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, Liddy uh, announced before that more, we'd finished more. Um, but I say no. We're going to keep going. We actually, we actually were planned to finish. Um, but I just really felt that God had more. Um, and particularly, I just feel like there's more that he's revealing, that he's just beginning his work. And it's interesting too, we had Pentecost Sunday last week, and when you read Pentecost Sunday, it's not like the Holy Spirit comes and then the book ends. The Holy Spirit comes and continues to do his work. And last week we had a combined service, so not everyone who was part of this service was there, but... I really felt personally, but also hearing the stories, being in the room, and then hearing, I guess, the testimonies coming back this week that there was some significant stuff deposited. And I kind of feel like some of that is going to be deposited tonight, that actually it wasn't just all about last week. We measured this date and marked this date of Pentecost, but the work that God wants to do amongst us continues. A number of years ago when we really felt um, as a leadership, when the leadership was much smaller, uh, there was one particular verse that God continued to give us, really around 2009 when we took over leadership of Red, and this verse came up in the book of Isaiah, and it's in verse 61, chapter 61. If you've got your Bible, I'm going to be jumping around a few different bits tonight. There's one in front of you. I apologize, I haven't got all of the page numbers. If you've never read the Bible before, just look onto the person next to you. Books tend to have chapter numbers and verse numbers and you'll get the hang of it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verse four. And what's really interesting about this is this is not a statement of a historical fact. This is actually Isaiah who's a prophet speaking God's truth of what he's going to do. He says they will, re- they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And there was this sense in this promise which is spoken over the people of Israel millennia ago a prophecy that's in action, we really felt that God was speaking to us as a church. And particularly, I felt that for this congregation, that we find ourselves at a time where we could look in some ways at our world and at people, and it does seem like there's something that is ancient that's fallen down. Where are the paths of life? How do you live now? And this promise which God said, take that and in a sense become rebuilders. Now, we had a conference called Rebuilders, uh, which we've had, and we had uh, Joshua Ryan Butler this year, and we had Terry Walling the year before, and John Mark Comer the year before. And I asked Joshua Ryan Butler uh, to do a little video on his iPhone just to um, you know, announce, and he, he shot this video, and it was great. And he just said, hey, Rebuilders, and it was just like so happy like Josh is, and there was something about him saying that, and I was like, wow, we'd used this, this term, we'd called the conference Rebuilders, but we never actually called ourselves Rebuilders, and Josh 
probably unwittingly there, I actually think spoke a prophetic word over us. And particularly, I want to state tonight over this congregation. A name and a task. To be rebuilders. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. (laughs) Now, what's so interesting is that passage sat there for a long time for me. It's when I continually referred to and read Isaiah and studied Isaiah. But I feel like particularly in the last couple of weeks, I was in the UK for a month with my family and we were at two conferences and a holiday in the middle and particularly just the amount of people that prayed for us um, to take something back to Australia was quite phenomenal. And it was almost since that prayer has happened and come back, God illuminated uh, in my scriptures a verse that's only a couple verses before. I'd read it in isolation, but I actually believe it's a clue for unlocking what it is to be prophetically a rebuilder at this time for God. And in verse 3, part B, if you want to call it that, there's no B in your Bible, but the second part of verse 3 It says, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And this verse is saying that instead of people wearing a posture, a garment is something that weighs you down, it's heavy. A garment can be something that makes you shine and be splendid. Liddy is wearing an incredible garment tonight, a technicolor I don't know what you call it, a technicolor coat, which seems quite flowy and light, does not seem something that would weigh you down, but a garment of heaviness is the opposite of that. A garment of heaviness is a posture where you're weighed down. And what Isaiah is saying here, Isaiah is opening a prophetic reality to us that helps us actually understand how God's world works, and that's the power of going in the opposite spirits. That instead of mourning, we as rebuilders choose the oil of joy. Now the oil is something which just seems like a metaphor there, but when you understand the symbology of the Hebrew scriptures, oil was poured on the head of kings and queens when they were anointed. That's where that word comes from, anointing which you'll hear in Christian language, this sense of anointing someone for a purpose. I was looking at the crown jewels at the Tower of London only a few weeks ago, and we understand the idea that kings and queens get crowns. But the idea of then pouring olive oil over a king is actually a really strange metaphor. But the symbolism behind it is actually that you will be commissioned and anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the link here is that the joy is not our earthly joy, which just comes from a temporary happiness, but comes from the Spirit. The promise here is that those who rebuild the ancient ruins will actually be ones who do that and throw off mourning because the ruins are ruined, but actually are covered in joy. And instead of a garment or as a spirit of despair, they put on a garment of praise. No spirit is in there. 
So instead of a spirit of despair that comes from humans, we actually put on a garment of praise. Again, we go in the opposite spirit and we fight that with a spirit of praise. So spiritual warfare is going in the opposite spirit. And that's what I want to talk about, an element of that tonight that is evident in the story of Pentecost. And what I've called tonight is this. I've got to turn it on. Last week, if you're at the Pentecost service, we talked about Pentecost, and I'm actually going to read that now. Let's read Acts 2 will be at the other end of your Bible, verse 1, and to revisit Pentecost, let's begin. Verse 1, Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now this language is strange. This is strange metaphors to happen in an ordinary house. But if you look at scriptures, this language and this metaphors and this imagery is actually not that strange because what this is, is heavenly language. These are kinds of things you see when people are able to spiritually see into heaven. This is the furniture of heaven where God's will happens in its fullness. But what's happening here is that temple, heavenly throne room of God imagery is happening in an ordinary house. It's no longer above, unreachable that actually this is now happening in some bloke's apartment in Jerusalem, not in the temple, not at some incredible moment where all of Israel has gathered and the kings and the priests and the prophets are there. This is now a new phase and heaven has now come down to earth in a small room with a group of people. Jesus has died, been resurrected. For 40 days, he has, he has instructed and taught the disciples. But this is a transformational moment, and heaven has come down to earth. And that's what we looked at last week. That concept that when heaven comes down to earth, we touch and taste and become completely enveloped in the love of God. Heaven is not just the place we go when we die. Heaven is where God's will and his presence is in its fullness. Because of sin, humans couldn't be in that place. And so therefore, humans were cut off from the love of God. But God did not stay distant. He sends Jesus, his son, God in human form, who dies upon the cross, is risen on the third day. And at Pentecost comes the counsellor, the comforter. Have you ever thought about that word? The comforter? That he comes to comfort you with the absolute love of God. And so last week we looked at that and people came forward at the Pentecost service and were prayed and this realisation of how much God loved us began to move amongst us. People who 
shared and, and, and sent messages back to us at the office. That was one of the key things that people felt. Even this morning, I had people sharing that with me after last week in the 10 a.m. morning service here, that people felt a profound sense of being loved by God. And so, when that love comes, what we find in the book of Pentecost, it comes for a purpose. Just in chapter one, if you want to jump back, Jesus had promised, as he was instructing them in those 40 days when he was in his resurrection state, he said, do not leave Jerusalem. This is verse four, chapter one, verse four. And wait, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And when they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now what they're meaning there is they're still getting it wrong. They're still expecting this to go down how they thought and basically all the cool stuff was just going to happen where they were. They did not need to move. They could remain passive and just stay there unchanged. And he said to them in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times nor dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The giant arrow that the disciples had pointed towards themselves is all of a sudden shifted and points outwards and disciples go from those simply following Jesus, trying to work out what he's doing and learning from him. And the name that is used after this is they are apostles, which comes from the Greek meaning sent ones. So, what this means is that to be a rebuilder is that you're invited into walking in the opposite spirit. Sent ones walk in the opposite spirit of paralysis and passivity. Sent ones actually move forward and are filled with the Spirit, and the other side of being filled with the Spirit is so that we can begin to take ground. Now, taking ground is what humans are built for. In the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, we see that God says in Genesis 1:28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And we have these two things going on. Be blessed God blessing and loving you. When you bless someone, it's a tangible act of loving them. So much of our concept of love is just a feeling that we have inside. I love that person. And we have this weird situation where you have people like, oh, I really love my, my auntie, but I never really tell her. Oh, I really love my wife, but I don't share it enough. Or I really love those guys, but I don't share it. So we have Hallmark cards, which reminders where someone else writes a little nice thing and we hand it to them as a token of our love. Blessing is actually love in action. Blessing is love come down in a quantifiable felt way in which we love someone else. So God is quantifiably loving Adam and Eve and telling him to go out and prosper in the world, to take ground for God, blessed and showing God's ways, bringing heaven to earth as they go. Now, Adam and Eve, instead of taking this offer, flip the arrow back to themselves. 
They focus upon themselves. Instead of following in God's love and following him to the ends of the world, instead the arrow is pointed back towards them and they simply try and look for everything inside, to love self. But that's an exhaustible love. God's love is inexhaustible. And it's like looking into a mirror where your only feedback loop is yourself. And that's paralysis. And that's pain. And that's brokenness. God sees the destruction this causes in the world. The world is almost overcome with chaos and disorder as humans no longer follow God, no longer desire to be blessed by him, but walk their own way. A flood comes across the world, but even after that, God, instead of ripping up the playbook, again starts and comes after humanity with his love, saying to Noah and his sons after they land on Mount Ararat, after the flood, he says this, Genesis 9-1, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, go, take ground for me, be blessed, bring heaven to earth. Abraham and Sarah, these nomads, God then starts to catalyze this call into a particular group of people that will be the Hebrew people, which will be a blessing to the world. He says to them in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2, go from your household, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will quantifiably love you. I want the best for you. I will follow you. I will make sure that you prosper. And that bit at the top is really interesting because humans have now got several generations where they're actually used to doing things their own way. And so he says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Goes from the understanding of living outside of God's blessing is going to blow your paradigms. You're going to have to reframe things. And here he suggests that humans can get used to a kind of life where we're not living in the embracing, enveloping, blessing and love of God. Where hunger of love is normal. Where famishing from blessings is normal. This sense of being lost and alone is normative for humans. And sometimes humans are used better to the devil they know. And so God is saying, no, don't stay stuck where you are. Don't stay paralyzed outside of my love. Go forward and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. See, this is expanding now. Those who are blessed are blessed to be a blessing. When we're blessed with this quantifiable, tasteable, felt love, it actually overflows us because this is a love that cannot just be contained in us. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We see this vision that God's not just about blessing someone's individual life, that there's actually a plan for the whole of humanity here. This thing's going forward. When the people of God find themselves in captivity in Egypt, again, he calls another person to go forward saying to Moses in Exodus 3, verses 10 to 12, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I will be with you. Close blessing, closeness, love. 
Joshua going into the promised land, which God had promised his people. In Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, it says this, I will give you a place, oh sorry, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. By the way, I hope you're realizing what's going on now. I hope you realize that when we're reading stuff like, so I'll be with you. I'll never leave or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. That's Old Testament. That's God speaking to Joshua and the people of God. But there's also Rima words in there that the Holy Spirit is actually speaking to people in this room. That these are promises that some of you have had years ago. Bible study leaders, parents, maybe teachers, pastors, friends, praying over you, maybe when you didn't even realize. There's a promise over your life and a love letter that's being written to you through the years. And what the Holy Spirit does is it begins to bring that into focus as you begin to see what this whole thing is about, that the whole time He's been following and chasing after you to show you how much he loves you. Even when Israel turns against that love again and again, continually falling, never living up to that second part to be a blessing to others, God sends prophets and they have harsh things to say because God desperately wants his children back to him. But the language is still there. To Ezekiel, go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, reminding the people of God's justice and his love and that he wants them. He wants them pure. He wants them holy. He's not happy to have them embroiled in injustice, sin, uncleanliness. He wants them fully. Even the language that the Old Testament uses is like a jealous God. The way a jealous husband will jealously protect his wife is the language that the scriptures use of his love for us. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me go. But more than anything, the image of going, of moving, of taking spiritual ground, we see in Jesus. Jesus, who emerges from obscurity, is baptized at the River Jordan. We see God's blessing on him as he emerges from the waters, as the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And we hear God's love for his son, his deep love. Jesus directly heads from the baptism. Where does he go? It seems weird and random, but he goes to the wilderness. And often we look at this as some kind of like spiritual retreat center out in the desert, but there's actually more going on here. There's actually something different happening that actually what Jesus is doing is going into the places which Israel saw was overtaken by spiritual forces that were impure and unclean and that were keeping the people captive. 
And as soon as Jesus emerges down out of the wilderness and into the synagogue, the people are amazed that he's teaching, but the demons actually get what's going on, and they're like, what are you here for? And it's interesting, Mark continually refers to the demons as impure spirits. Because what Jesus is doing as he walks is he's actually taking spiritual ground. The architecture is not changing, the geography is not changing, but the spiritual temperature is changing as Jesus is coming and taking ground for people. And there's the hungry and humble who get that and respond. And there's the spiritual forces, both spiritual and human, which resist that. But Jesus, at a key point in the gospel, sets his face towards Jerusalem like flint to his death upon the cross, where his love for you is shown in incalculable ways. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that on the cross, all our rebellion, our impurity, our self-hatred, our refusal to bless others, all of that is taken upon the shoulders of Christ And Christ takes it all because God loves you so much. And on the third day, Jesus beats sin, beats death, beats pain, rises from the grave, and a new world begins. And this march back out from the rebellion of the human heart begins And we see it, and if you look at all these different spheres I have here, this is about retaking the human heart. This is retaking, and I put here our walk, which is one of the languages that Scripture uses, how we live out what's inside our hearts, our lifestyle, our words, our actions, our deeds. He begins to take back homes where people live, where homes actually become places which represent what God wants, touches of heaven, cities. He has a heart after cities, sending the church into cities, nations or homelands, and then to the nations. And this is why Jesus says to his disciples, now you're about to get the Holy Spirit, and now it's time to go out. So rebuilding is actually the act of taking ground. It's the act of taking ground. The Spirit wants to come at this time and empower a new generation in the world to take ground. And God wants to do this amongst us, and particularly, he wants to do things for this service, and he actually wants to take ground tonight. Because there's strongholds and places that his Holy Spirit's coming up against right now, that Jesus wants to walk into. And for some of us, it's going to be a call to the nations. I spoke to someone this morning who, in our church, has come to the decision that God is calling them to go and minister in an overseas country. For others, it's a heart for this country. It's a heart for our city. It may be a heart for your street, your community, your local school, your workplace. For others, it's simply to actually allow the place where you live, your home, to actually be something which represents and reflects God's love. For others, you love God in your heart, but actually your walk is not actually reflecting what's going on in your heart. For others, the ground that needs to be taken is actually your heart. And the Spirit's here. The Spirit's moving. 
The Spirit's in these words, convicting, speaking His love, coming, saying, get up, start walking. I send the Spirit so that you will take ground. So the Spirit comes, and these disciples who are passive and unsure and getting it wrong, all of a sudden are transformed. The imagery of heaven is now on earth. It doesn't just have to happen in incredibly ornate temples and amongst the super religious people, ordinary punters from Galilee, who literally their accents are so like bogan that literally when they're preaching, people are laughing at them. Do you realize that? That actually when it says in you know, people, are, they're mocking them, saying, I think these guys are drunk. It's not just because they're sort of flailing around with the Spirit. These guys are actually from the back blocks. These guys have got super Galilean accents. Like, what? Galileans, come on. Like, are you kidding me? Those guys are thick. That was the impression that people had. And he uses them. He uses the unlikely. And what's going to happen now in this new phase is that actually it's the unlikely ones empowered by the Spirit, the hungry and humble who get used in this phase of the story. They become the rebuilders. And at this moment, it's not the perfect people in this room. It's not the people with Bible college degrees. It's not the people with all the information. It's actually the hungry and humble that the Spirit comes to fill you and empower so the Spirit wants to come, wants to reveal, wants to show love, wants to envelop us with His love. So heaven comes to earth so that we can take ground. So how do we do that? Heaven comes to earth so we can take ground, and we take ground when we bring heaven to earth. Let me explain that. Seems like a riddle. It sort of is. When we act in alignment with heaven. When we pray, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we connect our heart's desires with heaven's desires, when we connect our walk with the walk that heaven asks of us, we begin to align ourselves with what God wants. Now again here, it's really key. The language that I'm using here of taking ground can lead you to a false understanding of what I'm saying. I'm not saying that therefore all of a sudden you've got to muster up the energy in you and you've got to do it and you've got to be perfect and there's so much shame holding people back that they're not going to be able to do this perfectly. And in Jesus' name, I just pray off any shame. In Jesus' name. In the office this week, I've been hit several times to just pray into the stronghold of perfectionism. That somehow this is about getting some perfect combination right of Christian behavior, attitudes, actions, and then it will happen. No. We bring heaven to earth. We start acting like heaven on earth. How do we do that? God takes the ground. God's going to do it. God is the holy warrior. God is going ahead. God is the king of the universe. He is inexhaustible energy. His spirit comes. We simply have to align with him. This is the spiritual propulsion system of taking ground. Now, I just want to read something to help you understand what this means more. This is an aligning 
of the whole of our lives, our hearts with God. You don't have to do anything, but there is an interesting exchange. And I want to tell the story of a doctor called Walter Lewis Wilson who lived at the beginning of the 20th century. Now, he was a doctor at a time when there wasn't a whole huge health system around. Doctors were busy, busy people. But he desperately wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to follow God, yet his life was not had any cut through in terms of his spiritual life. He desperately wanted to be able to tell people about Jesus, yet he just literally was a failure at it. But then in 1913, something changed. One day in 1913, a French missionary visiting in the Wilson home asked the doctor, Who is the Holy Spirit to you? Wilson replied, well, one of the persons of the Godhead, teacher, guide, third person of the Trinity. Brilliant textbook answer. Theological, correct. Put it in Wikipedia. Put it in an essay at Bible college. Pass. But his friend continued, challenging Wilson. You haven't answered my question. To this, Wilson replied sadly, well, he's nothing to me. I have no contact with him and I could get along quite well without him. One year later, on January the 14th, 1914, Wilson heard a sermon by James N. Gray, an Anglican clergyman. And Gray was preaching from Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, which says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, in the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A verse that Wilson undoubtedly had heard before. But then the clergyman Gray leaned over the pulpit and said this, have you noticed that the verse does not tell us to whom we should give our bodies? So bodies are to be a living sacrifice, but who... Are we meant to sacrifice them too? The preacher continued, it's not the Lord Jesus. He has his own body. It's not the Father. Well, he remains on his throne. Another one has come to earth without a body. God gives you the indescribable honor of presenting your bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. You Bring heaven to earth when the Holy Spirit fills you because you are the container and receptacle of the Holy Spirit. That's his plan, to take it into the world. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, when you align your life with God, when you offer your life and your body, what I love there is not just your ideas, it's literally your bodies. Because in the West, we can have a a disconnect between our ideas and our actions. This is actually your body, all of you. Wilson returned home and fell on his carpet. There in the quiet of that late hour, he said, My Lord, I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. Now I give you this body from my head to my feet. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes, my lips, my brain. You can send this body to Africa or even lay it on a bed with cancer. It's your body from this moment on. Reflecting on this moment The writer Ross Patterson says of what Wilson learnt. An experience of the Spirit of God is a two-way transaction where both parties give to each other. He gives anointing and gifting to us. He wants us in return to give our bodies to him 
in total surrender. Listen to this. The fully genuine spiritual transaction involves not just a communication of power from him to us, it also involves a transfer of ownership from us to him. We get the spirit, he gets us. So the first ground that's going to be taken for some people tonight is simply that. I want the whole of you, God is saying. I don't just want your ideas. I don't just want your heart. I want your body. I want all of you to be my living sacrifice in the world. Do that and I will fill you with my Holy Spirit and power. So for some of us, that's that first circle. That's just the heart. For others who the Spirit is filling you, just a couple other things of what it is to take ground. We take ground when we embrace heaven's truth. When you begin to see yourself actually as God sees you, not broken, not filled with shame, not having to be perfect to be loved, not having to present this continual perfect image to the world and your friends and your teachers and your family, but actually seeing yourself that the God who created the universe loves you beyond measure, that he died on the cross and his grand project in the world is seeing you flourish and seeing you prosper and that he's growing you into Christ-likeness, and that he absolutely is bonkers and bananas over you. That's heaven's truth. So when you go into a situation, and that's your truth, not what the world is saying about you, not what that script in your head, or even people around you are saying that's against what God is saying. By the way, when you hear lies, the biblical language, when lies are spoken to you, what's the role of Satan? Satan is diablos, the liar, the accuser, the father of lies. So when you choose to embrace God's truth about you, that's actually an act of spiritual warfare. So you take ground at this moment in your spirit and your mind when you embrace the truth that God is gaga over you. And that begins to flow out because when we understand that God loves us, that we're blessed, we then realize that the flip side of that coin is that's not a blessing that we can contain. We can't keep that forever. That's actually not just something to treasure away in a little term deposit in your heart, but actually that's a blessing which overflows and blesses others. So we take ground when we embrace heaven's truth about ourselves, but also about others. Jesus said, when you give a cup of water to someone else, you're literally giving it to me. So we take ground when we speak heaven's words, return to what we started with, the oil of joy, the garment of praise, instead of a spirit of heaviness. This idea that so much of our language that is spoken by us and spoken over us actually betrays the truth. You're actually not fragile. You're actually not unlovable. You're actually strong and courageous and loved and God wants to use you and he's gonna use you when you step into his reality. When you step into what God is saying about you and you begin to speak his truth, you begin to align yourself with promises that have been said over your life, prayers that have been made over you. You discover these things that are spoken years and years ago over you that now come true in what God is doing. You rediscover 
your first love for him. There's some people in this room who just need to get back to that first love. You've overthought this. Melbourne is literally, the more I travel around the world, Melbourne has an incredible disease of overthinking-itis. It's utterly ridiculous. It's actually more fun having conversations with people in other cities sometimes because they just don't overthink everything, especially in the church. Some of us need to return to our first love that God absolutely adores you. Lastly, we take ground when we worship heaven's way. When you bring praise and worship, even if you're singing a song in your heart, when you fill the places in which you live with worship, when you act as worship, you see, Pete Craig says something really interesting. He said in the, I think it's in the prayer course, he says that when you go to a prayer room, a place that's specifically set apart for prayer, he said, really, he found that's like the one hour he doesn't pray. When he really learned how to pray, he would go and just almost reset in that hour. And then when he's out of the prayer room, he's praying, interacting with people, driving, praying. It's a really weird flip. And actually think, what we're doing here when we sing, as we'll do in a minute, when we sang just before, yeah, we're worshipping and we're praising, but in a set, we're resetting of how heaven operates. But that's not just for in here, these four walls. That's to actually reset us to have a worship life outside here. That whether you're someone who does electrical work or you're a mum or you type on a computer or you go and sell stuff, all of that when you do it to the glory of God is actually an act of worship that's bringing heaven to earth, doing ordinary things, linking heaven and earth in your activities. I run for his pleasure as the Olympian Eric Liddell said, whatever you can do when you do it for God's glory, you're bringing heaven down. Some of us need to turn our homes, particularly our bedrooms, into places of worship. That could be literally just playing worship music. You need to, we need to take ground and actually change the environments in which we're living. We get stuck in paralysis, not just in passivity, but even just in talking with our mates in the same old rubbish, Aussie, undercutting way, where it's actually really lazy, and we're actually really awkward as Australians about saying what we think of each other. We wait for the funeral, and they go, he was an awesome bloke. Like, why wait for the funeral? In Australia, like, we bag everyone, but when they're dead, they're awesome. God is asking us to bring his worship everywhere. The church takes his worship to the ends of the world. So our plan to be a rebuilder for this congregation, God has plans. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I think God's going to evolve things. But God has plans for us to begin to move through this. Some of you tonight, it's literally that hard. You're Wilson. You just got to fall on your face and God say, okay, have all of me. Others, it's linking up with what you believe in your heart, with your walk. Others, it's actually going home and creating your home as actually a place of a temple. In the biblical Hebrew imagination, temples and homes are linked. As a church, 
In a city and a time when we can be so self-focused, God is increasingly calling us to look outward as a church, how we can serve our neighborhoods, our city. We're going to step into that more. God is asking Red Church to be one of a number of churches, many churches, which actually begin to not just look at life in the 21st century post-Christian society, however you want to describe it, and not just just surviving in that place. God's actually calling us to thrive in that place. And God is putting a heart in us for the nations, whether that's going for some of us or for others, praying and interceding and actually believing that when we pray for a Hong Kong at the moment, when we pray for actually peace, that Iran and the Saudi and Gulf states and the US don't go to war, that actually the prayers of righteous men and women will be heard. That the thousands of people starving and flooding from Venezuela into Colombia that God's actually on the move. I heard a Venezuelan man only about three weeks ago telling the stories as his nation absolutely, ca- you know, technically on the surface, physically is falling into chaos, that all across Caracas, alpha groups are starting. Do you know in Syria that actually alpha's marriage course is taking off? Stuff is happening, and that is the prayers of righteous people. So we have to have a heart for the nations as well. So what we're going to do now is we're going to stand. And last week wasn't the end of more. There is more. And there's more right now. And so wherever you are on all of those things that we've just spoken about, We just ask the Holy Spirit to come, just for a moment. We're just going to have a few moments of just silence, actually. Let's just not even play. Let's just sit with you. We still our hearts and say, come, Holy Spirit. You may want to put your hands out. No compulsion if you just feel like you want to is a sign of opening your hands of what God wants to do in this moment. Come, Holy Spirit, show us what ground you're asking us to take.